We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Van Jones has worked in the Obama White House and at CNN. And the road in between those august stops was really, really hard. And it shaped his life. When you see people get torn apart on national media, and we all sit back and laugh, I never laugh. I've been that person. And here's what it feels like. It feels like somebody has taken your face and torn it off and stapled some ugly face on it, some other face that's only this one mistake you made or this one downfall. How he came back from that. Today, Van Jones on Touré Show. Van Jones is one of the smartest and most sober political analysts in all of cable news. On nights when it seems like many analysts are running around the set with their hair on symbolic fire, you can always count on Van to give us the cold, hard truth. In 2016, he became a national star because of how smart, how progressive, and how elegant he was on CNN. That was a return to prominence for someone who'd been high up on the mountain and then knocked very low. In 2009, Van became a special advisor to Barack Obama on green jobs, enterprise, and innovation. But six months into the job, a smear from Glenn Beck led to Van being forced to resign. And then he was at the center of an international story. He's beaten up on Fox every night for weeks. The moment left him deeply depressed. He was adrift in life. Today, he talks in-depth about that moment and feeling lost and what he did to get back to being successful. Because reaching success is about what you do after life knocks you down. Now, Van is the host of a show on CNN that airs twice a month on Saturday nights where he interviews incredible people. His first episode was Jay-Z. His latest episode is Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey. Damn, son, your bookings are killing the game. I always hope that this show is of value to you and that it gives you some thoughts, some tactics, some inspiration, some fuel for your rise. I know this episode will be all of that. Van Jones came to the studio. 
You carry yourself with this powerful dignity, I mm. think, that wraps whatever you're saying in this gravity mm. and this weight. Where does that come from in you? Well, do, you do you even know? Do you recognize what I'm talking about? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Um, uh, I mean, I can be silly. I mean, I, I, I've quoted LL Cool J and, and Marvel Comics on TV. I don't know if that's, if that's as, as dignified. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I do, uh, come from a, a particular background in terms of having grown up in the rural South on the edge of a small town. My uh, father grew up in extreme poverty in Orange Mound, Memphis. He joined the military to get out of it. And then he, um, uh, went to, uh, he put himself through college, a little small black college at, at called Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee and married the college president's daughter, my mother. Because uh, my dad had it like that, and uh, <laughs> and um, you know, and then my my grandfather on my mother's side obviously um, was a, a college president uh, at, a, at a very young age, and so you know, I've, I've had uh, there are a lot of black men in my family that have, you know taken on serious responsibility and um, played important roles in in our community, and I feel like I owe them a lot. Uh, if, if my dad had had half the chances I had, he'd have been you know, either, you know, a billionaire, or prime minister, I mean, whatever. I mean, he was, he was still, my dad's still the smartest political mind I've ever encountered, and I've worked with the very best. Um, but he was, you know, born poor in segregation, 1944. And uh, his, you know, his, he got, he was able to buy a brick house with a yard in the front and the back. And he, he never stopped talking about that. He just thought that was, you know, he's like, yeah, we, got a, we got a front yard and a backyard. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you ain't never opened that refrigerator and not had food in there. I mean... So, you know, when you start with those kinds of, you know, shoulders to stand on, you want to you want to jump high. I mean, you. Yeah. When I think about grandfather preacher, mm-hmm. grandfather, college president, mm-hmm. uh, father, a principal. Yes. So all these men who are leaders. Yes. And have to be precise with their words. And when I read that as your lineage, I'm like, oh, well, it starts to make more sense. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um yeah, I mean, and I think there's a lot of, um, you know, and my mom, of course, also extraordinary. I mean, she was a community leader as well. Actually, I spent more time with my mom growing up than my dad. They stayed married, probably shouldn't have, but they stayed married. And um, it was my mom who, you know, was you know, the big churchgoer, sorority member, that kind of stuff. And I, I went to a lot of meetings in the community with her and my twin sister. So I got some of my organizing background from my mom. I got some of my leadership you know, background from my dad. But, you know, there's a lot of black families like mine that don't get very much attention, but are the backbone of, you know, most, you know, small towns and neighborhoods across the country. And, um, we, you know, I was born in 68. So, you know, when those doors came open, they said, look, you guys are as good as any of these white kids. Uh, get in there and show them. But they had never been there. So, you know, they're sitting, you know, they sent me to University of Tennessee at Martin and then to Yale Law School. They're sending me to places they've never been. Right. And so I'm the first, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the explorer, you know, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and I do carry that. I do carry that responsibility of feeling like uh, a lot of people shed a lot of literal blood for me to be able to walk through some of these doors. Yeah. I mean, that has definitely been something powering my career and my choices that you better do something serious yeah. <laughs> because there's people who died and bled and fought for you to be able to have this opportunity. And we're in the generation where 
and you've been an activist for a very long time, yeah. but, but we didn't have to fight the way the previous generation had to fight just to be able to drink at mm-hmm. the water fountain, just be able to walk in the front door. Yeah, it was it was a choice. I mean, you, uh, for, for us, especially, you know, in the 80s, you know, you had the, the Huxtables and Spike Lee and all that kind of stuff. So there was a sense of kind of, you know, a black middle class that was coming on. But, you know, you could choose to you know, be more about the cause or the struggle or just choose not to be. And um, I chose to, you know, to, to take all this stuff seriously. I, you know, I graduated from Yale Law School in 93, moved to the Bay Area, started suing cops and working to close prisons and a lot of stuff that even my parents thought was weird. Like, Why don't you make some money and pay back some of these <laughs> law school loans? Um, but, uh, you know, I remember one time my uncles were getting on me about, boy, you need to make you some money first. You know, And my dad, who had never, you know, really taking my side in any of these debates. He's always kind of ribbing me about, yeah, you, you're going to be broke your whole life. You know, he stood up and said, hey, leave him alone. Somebody's got to do it. He wants to do it. Leave him alone. And that was a powerful moment in my life and also just in my, my family's life. You know, Willie Jones is supporting this, what Van is doing. And, um, you know, I, I think about that moment a lot now that he's gone. You know, he, 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 he was... Uh, you know, like most people, torn between. Geez, I wish this kid would go out and make some money, <laughs> but also I think proud that um, I was choosing uh, some of the, the more important values. Your demeanor on CNN throughout 2016 suggested even-keeled wisdom in the midst of hyperbole. Everyone else's hair is on fire, and here comes Van with the comment that even people on the right have to say that was fair, mm-hmm. that was honest, that was. And, and, and I've been in those moments when I see the way that the world sort of pulls you in different directions to mm-hmm. say this or say that. What were you saying to yourself throughout that period to keep yourself in, let's say, the, the right thing, the mm-hmm. honest thing, not be pulled to the mm-hmm. left by this feeling or pulled to the right by false equivalents or what have you? You know, it, it was such an interesting um, campaign season. Um, you know, I'm a lot better known now than I was then. And so I had a lot more freedom, honestly, you know, during the, the primaries, during the general election, because I was just one person out of, you know, 948 people on a screen. You know, <laughs> CNN, yeah. we have a lot of people yeah. in boxes yeah. and we have a very big panel. Uh, 16 boxes. Exactly. Yeah. I got 16 boxes. And, <laughs> you know, and I love it because you know, I get a chance to learn so much while I'm sitting there listening to everybody else. But it, I, I was just literally one of a lot of people. So, um but I come to all this stuff very differently, as you well know. I, you know, I was a grassroots activist, front line, you know, the left side of Pluto uh, through my 20s and into my 30s. You know, in the Bay Area, like I said, suing police officers um, and, and doing a good job at that. Um, you know, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, which I was lucky to, to co-found in 1996 uh, in the Bay Area. You know, we closed five abusive youth prisons. Uh, in the in the early 2000s, and we stopped them from building a super jail for kids, a super jail for kids in Oakland, which was already, yeah, I mean, I mean, just crazy stuff that was going on. People forget California is like Alabama when it comes to prison policy. I mean, we have we built I think 20 plus prisons in California and one university in the past 30 years. So you're living in California at a time where. You know, uh, where where does Michelle Alexander come out of? She comes out of, you know, being a teacher at Stanford, being in the Bay Area, fighting against, you know, the prison, what we call the prison industrial complex, now they call it mass incarceration. But you have to remember, that was my 
life and my world for most of the time that I was an adult. And so when you come from the grassroots activist background, especially in California, you're used to fighting Democrats. I didn't fight a Republican until I got to D.C. working for Obama. I was fighting, as much as I love him now, I was fighting Jerry Brown as the mayor of Oakland. I was fighting Willie Brown as the mayor of San Francisco, who at that time, what Democrats were doing to buy themselves some credibility uh, with the mainstream, they would be, quote unquote, tough on crime, which meant tough on young black and brown kids and throwing us in jail and prison for stuff that I saw kids doing at Yale and at worst, they would go to rehab. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw more drug use at Yale than I ever saw in any housing project I mm-hmm. worked in. And so you had that going on. And so I came up independent of the Democratic Party. I came up independent of all the, you know, kind of, you know, you got to you know, support them, whatever they do. I was fighting Democrats. You know, I, you know, bipartisanship in California is Democrats in the Green Party. So <laughs> I came up in that. And so, you know, we had to remember uh, it was a weird fluke that I ever wound up in the Obama White House in the first place. Mm. Um, you know, it, you know uh, uh, we had started something called the Green Jobs Corps in Oakland. We were taking young folks who were on street corners and getting them jobs in the solar industry, putting up solar panels. Nancy Pelosi thought that was the coolest thing. She took me to Washington, D.C. We got George W. Bush to sign something called the Green Jobs Act in 2007. I wrote a book about that in 2008, which became a bestseller, and then suddenly... Um, I'm one of the foremost authorities on you know, uh, clean energy and job training. The Obama administration said, hey, look, we got $80 billion with a B in the stimulus package for clean energy and green jobs. Nobody knows how to combine that with job training programs, but you come to Washington, D.C. Now, there are a few other people who did, but they weren't as high profile. And so suddenly I'm in the Obama White House. I'm there for six months. I, you know, I leave under fire. Now I wind up on cable television, but I don't come to it. With a normal media background, I don't come to it with a normal political background, and that gives me, I think, just a different perspective. It's not like I'm trying to figure out some way to triangulate. I just look at the stuff very differently. No, that is true. I remember Lawrence O'Donnell once said to me that, you know, what we see are people – like if we were covering sports, politics would be like we're covering not the games – (laughs) <laughs> not the practices, but people come out of the practices and tell us what they were like. And those of us like Lawrence, like Chris Hayes, like yourself, like Angela Rye, who've been inside the process, have an entirely different perspective on it than most of the pundits who have never been inside the process. Yeah, and, and I think that that balance between um, you know media professionals who are very good at their part of the equation and then you have people who have been inside the system and they have their part of the equation. What I bring is somebody who was only briefly inside the system. I was mainly fighting both the mainstream media and the mainstream politicians trying to help these poor black and brown kids not go to prison for their whole lives and not be killed by unlawful police violence. And so, you know, that's something I think is important because um, there's a lot of wisdom in the grassroots that never gets on television. And so you you mentioned like, um, you know, the Democrats were so convinced that they were going to that Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump, and I thought it was ludicrous the whole time. And I was saying the whole time, like I don't. You were, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, yes, you were. <laughs> and I was getting beat up on Twitter and getting beat up by you know my co- my Democratic colleagues on air and off. What are you doing? I said, well, first of all, even if I thought she was going to win, and I didn't, you never tell your team we got this in the bag. Mm. We've got it. These guys are trash. 
They couldn't win. You don't even, don't even put on, leave your, your, your loafers on. You don't even got to put on your sneakers. This, is the, this game is over. <laughs> that is a very good way to get your butt kicked. Right. And so I said, even if you thought you were going to win, saying you're going to win every day is a bad strategy, which turned out to, to actually backfire, at least in Michigan. But worse than that, I just felt like, you know, you get, you get fingertips. When, you, when you're a grassroots actress, you don't have a pollster. You don't have uh, focus groups. You got yourself, your clipboard, and the laundromat, and the bus stop. And you learn how to figure out what's real and what's fake in that tactile way. And for me, it was real simple, bruh. I used to be able to stand up, and when I was giving a speech, and, they, and it was going badly, which happened often, to save myself in front of a liberal crowd, I could always say, and before I close, let me just say one thing about Barack Obama. <laughs> People would go nuts. And you could always save yourself. I got on this stuff and I said, well, let me just say a few words about Hillary Clinton. Crickets. Now, this is in you know January, February 2016. And I'm like, hold on a second. There's something really wrong here. And so then you know, the data dummies that run the Democratic Party and think they know everything say, well, you know, Van, the data doesn't back you up. And I, was, I, I knew something was wrong. My only point is simply this. You ask, you know, to the extent that I, I came across differently on television, you know, I've had to be, I've had campaigns where people's lives were in my hands. Mm. I've had campaigns where, you know, somebody's child was dead and even the NAACP wouldn't take the case. And it was me and them against the world. And, when, and, and, and there's a sobriety that you have to bring to that to try to figure out who's real, who's fake, how can we get this done? Who can we rely on? And I tried to bring that sobriety to television. And, you know, to the extent that it, it, I looked different, it's because, bruh, I am different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think sobriety is an excellent word for the vibe that you were bringing um, when people were saying all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> I mean, and I've been triggered in those moments yes. and had to swallow it and... So I know how I do it, and I only do it so well. You do it much better than I do. So when you're in those mega panels and somebody says something crazy and the Trump supporters, uh, the televised Trump supporters were saying really crazy things. Yes. How did you maintain just your personal cool mm-hmm. to not be like, Jeffrey, what are you talking about? <laughs> or, or, or not, and not just to beat up on him, but just yeah. any number of folks. Like, what? Like, because I know inside you're probably like, what are you talking about? But outwardly you'd be like, let me respond to that. <laughs> well, I think a couple of things. I grew up in the rural South, and that's a very important. I mean, a lot of my colleagues grew up, you know, on the coasts, uh, and, and, and they literally have just never heard stuff like that before. Mm. So literally, they, I mean, they were for the first time in their life being confronted with people who hadn't been housebroken and potty trained, you know what I mean, <laughs> by, you know, tw- 1,200 other liberals and progressives who had already kind of, you know, beat them up. And so first of all, so I, uh, and, and, you know, given where I grew up, you know, someone like a Jeffrey Lord or, a, you know, a, you know a McEnany or any of these people, I mean, they're pussycats and, and very easy to deal with compared to the folks I grew up with who were just straight up like, well, we just don't like y'all around here. So so I think I was just better prepared to deal with it just in, in that regard. Um, also, I listened to a lot of right-wing media. Uh, I think most, I mean, a lot compared to my peers. I mean, I mainly listen to MSNBC what do you and listen CNN. To on uh, the right-wing? Uh, yeah, uh, Fox, um, Rush Limbaugh. Um, 
uh, I check out Breitbart, though I, I just I can't. You know, I, a little bit of that goes a long way. Um, I read um, Eric Erickson stuff every day. Um, I, I feel a responsibility. Eric Erickson is easier to yes. swallow than. Do you go to Mark Levin? Can uh, you go to? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, um, not as often. I mean, but I, yeah, I'm listening. Especially when I go home, I'm and you know, I'm driving through Tennessee. I really make sure to try to just imbibe all of it, and then I try to keep up. I say that because I don't want to be guilty of what I accuse others of. I accuse the right wing of being in a bubble. It's hard to do that if I'm in a bubble. So I can. So the other thing is, so I grew up seeing this stuff, um, and then I. When when somebody says something that sounds crazy to a liberal or progressive to me on television at seven o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, those sound bites and talking points have been out there since nine in the morning. Sure, and so it's not my first time hearing it, and so I've had a chance to listen to it, process it, think about what's the best way to try to respond. You know where, and and then the other thing I I, I try to do is I try to give them as much ground as possible. Now listen, you could be right about this. And this and this. And your answer still doesn't make sense because of this, right? <laughs> and so that's what people say. Well, you know, Vance being fair, he's being too fair. But I'm just saying, these arguments are nonsense stacked up upon nonsense upon nonsense. So you don't have to fight the whole stack. You can give them, you know, listen, I can give you 90% of your argument and you still are wrong. You know? And so, you know, and I think that's important as well. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I think a lot of the greatest moments of my life have happened while I was traveling. I think about going to Rio on New Year's Eve with my girlfriend and walking down the beach and going to Paris and biking around and up the Champs-Élysées and proposing to her and last year going to Costa Rica with the kids and AT being around and getting all messy. When you travel, you grow, you expand, you learn, and you kind of like your home a little bit more when you come back. How you figure out where you're going to go is important. Don't visit a ton of sites. Go to Tripping.com. With one search, you can compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites. All in one place so you can find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. See, with a vacation rental, you get more privacy, more space, more choice. Fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, maybe even hot tubs. It's like having all the comforts of home with a whole new world outside to go explore. Best of all, at Tripping.com, you can join the millions of travelers who find more savings with rates up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. So if you want a spring break in Montego Bay, Tripping.com. You want to swim in Rio de Janeiro this summer? Tripping.com. You want to hang out in Wakanda this fall? Tripping.com. This year, save time and money when you book the vacation home of your dreams with Tripping.com slash Toray. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash Toray. Find your perfect vacation rental at Tripping.com slash Toray. Now back to the show. I want to go backwards in terms of your CNN history from here because you have a new show. This is your second hosted show at cnn the van jones show yes um how do you get your own show because i think folks don't realize you're you're a, a, a pundit or a commentator that does not necessarily in the minds of the executives suggest he should host his own show but you're so popular are you now at a stage where you can just go into jeff zucker's office and say hey here's what i want to do and he's like all right let's take it seriously because it's van Man, I wish I was that mean. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> so how does it, how does it happen? Um, did, did they come to you or did you say, I, I need to do something different? You know, what's so interesting, um, uh, in some ways it's my third show because I did, I did Crossfire yes. early on yes. with uh, uh, Newt Gingrich and SC Cup. Cup yes. um, and that was an amazing experience. The show didn't work out uh, from a ratings point of view. But I got a chance to really work closely with Newt and with SE, and I got a chance to, you know, frankly, come to really appreciate how big the the right wing is in terms of its institutions, in terms of its its ideology, and it's I mean it's a it's you know as big as the left it feels to us. The right wing is just as big with just as many characters and players, and I got a chance to work closely with people who are very well connected. So I I still benefit from knowing those folks. 
but that show didn't work out. That was in 2013. And then, um, and then what happened, actually what happened, if you, I mean, if you want to get into it is Ferguson happened mm-hmm. and I'm not a, a news person. I'm just an opinion person. Right. And up until then, I had just been kind of doing, you know, former Obama administrator versus S.E. Cup on whatever issue or right. versus Newt on whatever issue. Um, and then one of my producers, uh, Rebecca Cutler, said, listen, what's happening in Ferguson is so disturbing. I think you should go there. And I'm like to myself, that's weird. Because, you know, ordinarily they send correspondence. Right. And then we stay in the bureau and we, we comment on what right. the correspondents are doing. But um, but they put me on a plane. I, I went to Ferguson's. I'm on the ground there with, you know, the host, people like Anderson, Don Lemon, et cetera, um, and the reporters and stuff. And they suddenly saw that I could do more um, because I could relate to the people who were there. I could, I could also talk about police policy because, remember, I spent 10 years right. suing police departments. Right. So I had this very deep understanding about, you know, p- police uh, policy and that kind of stuff. Also, my dad, uh, when he was in the military, was a police officer, and my uncle is a police officer. So I come from a law enforcement family. Uh, my dad's a former uh, military cop. Uh, my favorite uncle is a is a cop, um, but I sued cops. So I suddenly fell into this situation where they could use me as a police, you know, expert. They could use me as a person who understood the grassroots movement stuff. They could use me as somebody to talk about race. And I think they realized, oh, we can actually do more with this guy. Then, unfortunately, after Ferguson, we went into a year, year and a half where it was just all black people getting killed. And in that black people getting killed moment, I was on all the time. Um, And then suddenly we're into the presidential. And I think it just, it worked out that they began to have some confidence um, that I could handle a lot, that I could, could, they'd seen me in enough different situations. But then the other thing that happened was I kind of, you know, broke the rules. I was so frustrated with the mainstream media commentary on the election. Hillary's going to win. Trump has no pathway. Don't take Bernie seriously. All this kind of stuff. Now, I wasn't a Bernie fan or a Hillary fan. I'm still a 2008 Barack Obama hope and changer. I mm-hmm. haven't changed at all. Mm-hmm. People say, well, how can you be so nice? I'm a, I'm a hope and changer. I'm not going to let Trump change me. I'm still a 2008 guy. But, you know, I appreciated what Bernie was doing, and I knew he was speaking for a lot of people. And the guy got 47% of the Democratic primary vote, and he's like a 3,000-year-old Muppet socialist. <laughs> so if this guy can take 47- From New England. From New England, and, and, and was brilliant. And if this guy can take 47% of the vote away from Hillary Clinton in, in the Democratic primary and can come from nowhere and beat her in Michigan, this is a very weak candidate. And everybody was saying the opposite. And I said, listen, now, now it's October. We're getting very close, very close. And I'm very worried. Nobody else is worried. I said, we only got two scenarios. Hillary loses and we're in hell, or she wins and we're in hell because you got so many people out there who are going to say it was a rigged election, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, you could have an armed Tea Party response to a Hillary Clinton victory under these circumstances. Sure. So I said, listen, I'm just going to get my own camera crew and I'm just going to go into Trump country and start talking to people. And I started going into Trump, Trump voters' homes, sitting down with them and saying, are we going to have a civil war? And they would say, yeah. And you're doing that before, on my own. So before on, the messy before, truth comes exactly. out. In fact, um, what happened was. So CNN just gave you a camera crew no, just to. No, I didn't tell them. I broke the rules. I knew that if I asked them, they would say no, because I'm not a correspondent. <laughs> and 
it just wasn't going to work out. And I just wanted to see for myself. So I got some you know, people I had, had done some documentary film work independently with, and we went out, uh, Meridian Hill Pictures, and we just went out and we just shot stuff. And then I brought the stuff back, and we got all volunteer people to cut it and to edit it and whatever, you know, just complete volunteer effort. And we call it The Messy Truth. And So you created your own pilot. Yes, I created my own pilot. I created my own everything, independent, breaking all the rules. And then I put it on my Facebook page and got a million views in a weekend. And then they call me in <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. they, they were not happy and they were elated <laughs> at the same time, right? Because I wasn't supposed to do that, but it was clear that I was onto something. And then after the election, um, I would have been the one person who had been consistently calling it <laughs> that this was a very, very tough road for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I had shown online that there was a big appetite for what I was trying to do. And so they gave me my own uh, six, you know, six episodes called The Messy Truth. Um, and I got a chance to go out and do it again and again with CNN. But it was this combination of, one, having a very unusual background for television in the first place. Rebecca Cutler and Amy Antellis feeling like, let's just, this is back in 2012, let's just give this guy a chance. He's, he's, he has this Obama background, but he's also kind of independent. Let's put him on. Just, just, they just took a chance on me. I did fine in, tw- in 2012, but you know, the crossfire of the show didn't work out. But then you hit this Ferguson moment and you hit this election moment. And then I just went on my own independently. And then all that came together and they gave me a shot. And with the first, you know, six episodes of The Messy Truth, I think the first two or three episodes, it was the highest rated thing on CNN that week, period. Wow. And so, um, you know, we said, okay, looks like we may have something. But then we took, most people say, well, listen, go on every day, Uh, you know, keep going. I said, no, no, no. I've shown some of what I can do and what I want to do, but let's let's stop. Let's take a step back. Let's think through. You know, what could we do on television that would be beautiful, that would be impactful, that would be good? Let's not just try to be on TV all the time just for its own sake, because I think that quality over quantity, given how much stuff there is out there, is important. And so, you know, again, a lot of people were shocked. Well, man, you know, why aren't you on TV? I said, I'm thinking, (laughs) I'm thinking, I'm talking to people, I'm trying to figure out what would be useful. And so, you know, I I had no show on TV for nine months. Um, And I'm so glad because what it let me do was to begin to understand what was happening and the way that the media, I think Putin is playing both sides. I think Putin has both of both sides you know with these bots and all these different things kind of amping it up so that the real threat isn't necessarily a big authoritarian state you know led by trump is like hitler or whatever some of the liberals are scared of i think the real danger is just dysfunction and division Mm -hmm. in a country that can't do anything Mm -hmm. and i said okay whatever i do i don't want to contribute to that whatever i do i want at, at the end of the day to be able to say I would good, strong, progressive, but I didn't unnecessarily add to all the crazy. And so the Van Jones show is really Sesame Street for grown people. That's really <laughs> what the show is. It's just a safe place for meaningful people to have meaningful conversations, no gotchas, no, you know, crazy, you know, stuff. It's on a weekend, so no, every other weekend, so you don't have to fight about the ratings. And, um, I, and I, my hope is 
that it can be a little bit of medicine in this very toxic environment. I, I want to talk a little bit more about Van Jones show and a little bit more about the messy truth, but I want to go back just one second because a lot of my friends and people I love are in the cable news business, but a lot of us don't have a project like you're talking about. They don't think about why am I doing this and what do I want the general thesis out of my appearances to be. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they want to be in the mix, you know, on TV, getting seen and giving their opinion, but you stepped back. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us don't have the time and the rigmarole of life to step back and say, what am I contributing and how can I contribute at the most uh, valuable level for the entire country, the entire meta conversation? Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I, I felt like I intuited that you were doing that, mm -hmm. that you weren't just on TV to be famous, but you're like, I, I have something that I'm trying to accomplish with this yeah. body of appearances. Yeah, well, look, I, I I appreciate that. It means a lot coming coming you know from you as well because you're you know such a big part of the, the media and understand you know different people come in for different reasons and they're up to different things. Um, you know, for me, I this is all kind of accidental. Uh, I didn't set out to be have a media career. I didn't set out to be a, a well known person. I set out to try to stop kids from getting killed and put in jail. That's what I'm still basically doing. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm a full-time volunteer at the Dream Corps still. The Dream Corps is an organization I helped to found after I left the White House. You know, we've got Yes We Code working with um, Silicon Valley companies trying to get more of our kids, you know, jobs and opportunities. I've, I've been out there. It's, yes We Code is amazing. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, so Yes We Code, I still work with that. I was on the phone with them this morning. Um, we have uh, uh, Green for All still working to get solar jobs and solar opportunities into the hood. Work with them every day. Um, also at the Dream Corps, we have uh, Cut 50, which is a campaign to cut the prison population and crime in half. And uh, we have the Love Army there, which is trying to spread, you know, love and goodwill in a tough time. And so most of what I'm doing on a daily basis is still, even though I'm not frontline, I'm not paid staff anymore, I'm the board president, and I'm constantly involved in trying to figure out how to get good things to happen. Plus, I'm a dad. I got two little boys, one's 13, one's nine. They can't see me on TV screaming, yelling at people and being rude, and I'm telling them to stop fighting. Right. So between still, I mean, I'm still deeply involved in grassroots work. Um, very proud of the younger people I get a chance to work with every day at the Dream Corps. Um, still working on criminal justice every day through the Dream Corps and, and the Cut 50 campaign. Jessica Jackson Sloan's an amazing star who's rising in that field. I get to work with her every day. So I'm working as a grassroots organizer. I'm working to support grassroots organizers, not organizer anymore. I'm a dad. So then when I'm on TV, I can't just be on TV just slapping fools down and trying to get sound bites. Like, it doesn't fit. And so for me, much more useful to try to um, be a progressive voice. I can't be any kind of other voice. I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm still on the left side of Pluto on every issue. Mm. But be a progressive voice who's also trying to be constructive. Because it's not the disagreement. We're supposed to disagree, but we don't have to disrespect. And it's very hard for me to tell my kids to be respectful and tell the right wing to be respectful if I'm not being respectful. Yeah, yeah. Um. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So I, I think you got to how you got the Van Jones. Uh, you got how you got the messy yeah. truth. You got mm-hmm. to how you got the messy truth. Yes. I don't recall you yeah. saying how we got to the Van Jones show after you were yeah. you were thinking and pontificating. and Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it has to do with the people at CNN. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Zucker is a genius for television. People say, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. But you're still talking about CNN. I've never seen uh, anything like, you know, uh, Saturday Night Live has their own news in terms of, you know, NBC, MSNBC. They could be talking about all of that stuff. Saturday Night Live is always talking about CNN, throwing up a a Jake Tapper, throwing up a Brooke Baldwin, throwing up an Anderson Cooper. There's just something that you know we've been able to maintain, and frankly, Jeff and Amy and Tellus and those guys have been able to maintain. Was this Jeff's idea? It was. It was. It. I wouldn't say it's Jeff's idea, but what I would say is that Jeff was open to a very, I think, odd process with me, because most of the time, if he says, "Listen, like, we're we're thinking about having a show," you know, people would say, "Well, let's put it up," you know, you know, day after tomorrow. Right, because people are afraid the window's going to close. People are afraid, you know, that people. This is a very fear-driven business. Yeah, and and I said that's great. Well, let me think about it. You know, let, let's 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 come up with something beautiful. Let's come up with something that would really make a difference. And you know, and then Amy and Tellus, who's you know you know very close to me, um, she's like, you know what? Given how weird you are and how odd your approach is, <laughs> we we should put it on Saturday night because then you'll have no ratings pressure. And you can just do whatever weird stuff you want to do. And, you know, if we put you on, given how strange your take is on the news right now, because my, 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 take, my take is, you know, we're getting played both sides and that we need to find common ground. Like, there's no nobody thinks that you're the only person that thinks that. So why don't we put you on Saturday night and let you do what you want and give and to give me a great team? And. But that's the genius of a Jeff Zucker. Is like, listen, we have this talent. We don't quite know what to do with it. But let's take time. Let's let's go back and forth. Let's figure it out. And let's try some stuff. We're not in a hurry. 
um, you know, Van Jones is part of CNN family. In fact, when I walk down the street, people don't know my name. They say, really? They go, hey, CNN. It's the first thing they say. <laughs> hey, CNN. But you got to get a lot of Van. You know what? I get, hey, Vance Johnston from CNN. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. When I was on BET, I got a lot of, hey, BET. Yes. When I went to MSNBC, a lot of people knew my name. That's then. And I'm sure, and CNN is the wallpaper of America's airports and bars. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, Van, I like you. Well, look, I, I got more of that than I than I used to. But, I mean, I can't tell you. It's it's a There's a bunch of people that watch cnn every day all day and they don't all they don't know all of our names like they, <laughs> right. no but so far nobody's called me bakari as long as nobody oh. calls me bakari i'm happy <laughs> yeah. people have called me sway it yeah, happens yeah. it happens um you know as somebody who is in the current business of booking folks y- your booking list is extraordinary van jones show started with jay-z yeah Next, you have can we say yeah. Ava and Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, how are you coming up with this triple A <laughs> list level of booking? Are you are you calling the folks yourself? Are you working with CNN? It's 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 a, it's both. Um, first of all, my show is every other weekend. It's the most bizarre approach to television, yeah. right? It's like it's not every day, it's not every week, it's every other week. It's not in prime time. It's on the weekend. We're trying to build a habit here, Van. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but um, I just think I just see the world differently. I'm like, listen, I think most people don't watch TV. I think, I think mm-hmm. people look at their phones, mm-hmm. and if something if something happens, it's you know beautiful or interesting, and it winds up on Instagram or their Facebook or Twitter. That's where they're going to see it. So to me, like, you know, I'll, I'll get to the bookings, but I mean, just the basic theory of my, my theory is I love Rachel Maddow. Yes. Love her. She's on TV every day, five days a week. Trevor Noah, love him. He's yes. on TV every day, four days a week. I love Bill Maher. He's on TV every, every week, once a week. Right. I don't know that Rachel, Trevor, and Bill, if you just ask people, who who's on TV more? Who has more influence? I don't think the public mm-hmm. counts it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think the public says, "Well, Rachel's on TV five times more than Bill, therefore she's five times more impactful." Sure. Or you know, Trevor is only on four days a week, therefore he's you know one fifth less impactful than Rachel. I think it's more about who you're being and what you're trying to do with your show. So I said, let's just blow up the whole model. Let's not do prime time. Let's do it on the weekend. Let's do it every other weekend, and then focus on the people who I think are right now being underserved. Right now, the politicians and the pundits get 24 hours of access to the public. But we don't have a Larry King anymore. Right. We don't have a Charlie Rose anymore. We don't have a Tavis Smiley anymore. We don't have an Arsenio anymore. Where do the influencers, who are not politicians, get a chance to come on and have a real conversation? I said... That seems to me to be a big problem. And I think for, from a, as, a, as a positive populist, I'll put it that way, I think that regular folks don't trust the politicians in either party and would probably be more interested in what Steph Curry has to say. We had Steph Curry as well. Then, or Malcolm Jenkins, you know, who, who you know, a, a Black Lives Matter guy who won the Super Bowl. We'd be more interested in hearing what they have to say, or even Meghan McCain, what she has to say, than, you know, Senator so-and-so or Governor so-and-so. So, again, I just have a different view. So I'm like, I'm basically, I'm trying to counter-program all the cable television. I'm like, right. look, here's the deal. Right. I think people would rather have um, meaningful conversations that aren't mean and gotcha. I think they'd rather hear from influencers rather than politicians. I don't think they care if I'm on every day. 
I think that, you know, you know, we pull stuff from like social video, we have a live audience, I do a lot of field reporting, I do a lot of stuff that's just weird. And the people who want that kind of um, television can just DVR it. They can just DVR it. Sure. They're not gonna watch it in real time anyway. Or catch it online. Or catch it online or whatever it is. So, you know, but again, I give, I give CNN and I give Jeff and I give Amy and I give Rebecca Cutler a lot of, a lot of credit because they're willing to, 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 to kind of let me do weird stuff. And I, I, and I can't tell you, to be able to do weird stuff at a place like CNN um, is just a blessing. I mean, I mean, I, every day, when I, work, when I used to work for Obama and walk in the White House, I'd look at my badge and I'd be like, wow, like this is, this is crazy. And it was so crazy, it only lasted six months. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but I feel the same way when I walk into CNN. I mean, I, I have to, you've got to pull out your little ID to like, you know, hit the, so the magnetic lock opens. And every time it opens, I'm like, Phew. You know? <laughs> Get out of here, man. No, man, I'm serious. I'm like, I it's mean, the point. By now they have van face recognition <laughs> oh, as soon wish. as Van walks in the building. Oh, oh please, sir, please. I wish. The I ratings wish. just went up two points because Van Jones walked in the building. No, no, no. You know, I, it's, uh, I, I, uh, Obama giving me a shot, Prince giving me a shot, and CNN giving me a shot. That's, I mean, that's your whole, you know, career right there. You know, you have, and I don't think we do enough to open the doors of people behind us. One reason I love Oprah so much and Ava do Ava so much is because those sisters work hard to get other people on. Yes. And I got to start figuring. I mean, I've been working so hard to get my own black ass on. <laughs> That I don't think I've done enough to try to help other people. So just 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 because booking is a constant personal concern for yes, me, just, just how are you getting these super level guests? Are you, are you, like I said, are you, are you calling them yourselves? Is CNN doing it, helping you um, with it? Well, CNN puts in a lot of work as well. Um, look, I've been the, the the camera is very kind to me. I'll be fifty years old this year. I've been doing the hard community work for thirty years. You know, big cases and small. And so I just know a lot of people and they, they, I've never asked them for anything except, you know, help me to, you know, when this passes bill or help me, you know, whatever. So, you know, I have some favors stored up just from being, you know, a part of our community for so long. And honestly, I think, um, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I also think that there's something happening now in the black community uh, where I think African Americans really want each other to win. Mm. It, there's no longer this. Well, there's all, it can only be one, and right. and you know it's got to be you know Tyra versus Naomi and all that kind of stuff. I think that's falling away. And so you know when you see someone like me trying to put a show on, um, I think you know there are African Americans and people who care about our community who are responding much more generously than they might have five years ago. Mm. And so, you know, Jay-Z was like, hey, look, you know, uh, I'll be there. Um, Oprah the same way, Ava the same way, Steph the same way. They're just like, hey, look, you're doing a show, I'll come, I'll help. Because there's years of Years of relationship built up. Exactly, built up. And and I think and that's something that people want to run past. I think you have a lot of people, again, like I'll, I'll be almost 50 years old. I think you have a lot of people coming in now who understandably they want to be famous tomorrow, yeah. and they want they want to be on the cover of this magazine. They want to be invited to this thing or whatever. I've never focused on that. I've never focused on that. And so, uh, but by working as hard as I have, and listen, I worked on transgender liberation issues in the '90s. The first organization to fight for transgender rights against the police department and against jails 
was called Transaction. I founded that organization working with um, some, you know, uh, sister brothers you know, who are from that community in uh, 1997. So, you know, my friend Caitlin Jenner, I, I tell her all the time, 20 years before you were a household name for this stuff, I was on the front lines. And, the, the, you know, we changed the policies in San Francisco jails because they were, they were doing horrible stuff, putting people in very unsafe housing situations and all that kind of stuff. The protocols we established in San Francisco jails in the late 90s are now the global protocols for how you deal with housing. So, so when, you, when, when I can tell somebody like a Caitlin, I was working on your issue 20 years ago, you know, she's going to say, yeah, to come on the show. I mean, it's like, so, so, and mm-hmm. I just think that I would encourage people just work on stuff you believe in, work on stuff you believe in, do, do the work, just do the work. And if you do the work and you're good to people and you learn and you screw up horribly and then you apologize and you come back a little bit better next time, you build up some goodwill in the bank of the world that then when you when you do want to do something that might put you in the spotlight, you got a big bank account to draw from. And that's basically what's going on right now. And people are like, listen, Ben, you've only had, you know, four shows, Jay-Z, Oprah, Ava, Steph Curry, like you get it's they, 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 that's nuts. I say it. I've only had four shows, but it's four shows after thirty years right. of work. Right, right. Um, can can I tell you one messy truth? Yes. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes the messy truth fell into false equivalence. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. But I, I know that liberals feel that way a lot. Yeah, but you can say more about it. Yeah. Well, well, no. I mean, it just felt like sometimes you were trying to say, you know. This is similar to this. Yes, and I was kind of like, your your examples about what we are not doing is not equivalent mm-hmm. to what they are doing or have done to the country by inflicting this man on yeah. us. Sure, but I think that part of the problem that I have with you know my fellow liberals and progressives is the same problem I have with my kids. Like it's always well. He started it. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> and I'm like, well, is that the- what I'm doing? No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just okay. saying there's a danger of that. Of Yes, it is in fact true that the Republican Party um, is, borders on treason at, at this point in terms of its, its abandonment of its own principles and values. Absolutely. Let alone basic democratic values and, and values for a democratic republic. And I'm tough on them. I'm tougher on us. I'm much tougher on us because I actually expect us to be able to govern someday. Mm-hmm. I think that our coalition will govern. I think that all of this nonsense and this divisiveness and this crazy stuff and the gerrymandering or whatever is fear of our coalition. And I think our job is to grow our coalition and to erode their coalition. That's our fundamental job. And I don't think when – when you lose to a Donald Trump, I think you've got to look tough in the mirror. And I do believe that we thought correctly that – 2016 was going to be a referendum on bigotry in the Republican Party. And it was a referendum it was. on bigotry in the Republican Party. And they're and, okay with it. And 3 million more people voted for us than voted for that nonsense. And that's a good thing. However, where the vote was decided, it was also a referendum on elitism mm-hmm. in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And in you know in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in some of these places where the where, where they were not wrong, that the Clinton campaign was an arrogant, out of touch campaign. Fair. And 
some of those white guys who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump shouldn't have done it. I know a bunch of them. I'm mad at them for doing it. But they had a point that they were trying to make that we still haven't gotten, which is that you need to draw your circle a little bit bigger. I think think liberals and progressives need to draw our circle bigger. Do we need to look at Trump's card and say, I hear you and say, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. and and also here, because I mean, here's my frustration. I thought perhaps wrongly that after 30 years on the left fighting some of the hardest battles without a national platform, I had bought myself maybe more credit with liberals to then challenge. Um, But I think for some people, they think I was born at CNN they, you know, they, they the last tweet is or the last you know sound bites the thing that they remember the most. But what, what I will say is this: I am tough on us. I am tough on liberals. I'm tough on progressives. I think we're supposed to be the party of working people, and we're supposed to be inclusive, and we're supposed to be, you know, all these great things. And sometimes we're just not because we get triggered by these people, and we get smaller than we should. And I think that our, our fight is to never become what we're fighting, to not beat what we're fighting. And to not assume things about what we're fighting until we investigate. And that is a very high standard, but it's my standard. So I don't want to become them. I don't want to become orange. I don't want to become a left version of orange politics. Yeah. Um, I want to, uh, you know, I, I, I still think Michelle Obama was right. When they go low, we go high. And we won two elections with that and, and lost one not doing that, by the way. Hillary Clinton was not the warm fuzzy. Um, and I, I just, you know, so I, I, I will, I will be tougher on us than I think most liberals want me. To. I think you should be tough on us. There is a lot to be tough about. But how do I find that common ground, which is so much of what you're talking about, uh, when we feel that they are either racist mm-hmm. or accepting of racist people and or racist ideas? in their party? Um, That's a very bad, very bad thing. And I don't think it's the only thing. In other words, I'll put it this way. I think that the Republican Party has not, has tolerated, at worst tolerated, and it's at times encouraged racial bigotry and sexism and, and, and xenophobia and all kinds of nasty, horrible stuff. Um, and I don't think we should give an inch on that. I, I, I fight as hard on, you know, for Muslims and for Native Americans and for black people. I mean, I'm, I'm a frontline person fighting on all that stuff. Um, and I also think that there are areas of common ground where we don't have to agree on all that stuff. But, we, but for instance, on this addiction crisis, on criminal justice, on the jobs for our kids, energy to the future, there is common ground. And so here's my thing. Where they are wrong, we should fight them very hard, as I do. Where we disagree, we should fight. My only point is we should fight in a way that where we actually agree, we can get something done. So, for instance, I mean, just I'm not asking people to do stuff I don't do. And this is something I, I think is very important. Anybody who's still listening to this podcast now must really care about this conversation. So let me, so let me, just, let me just say this. Don't forget... When the Tea Party first reared its head and came after Barack Obama in what was clearly a racially fueled backlash, Mm -hmm. who did they go after? Acorn and Van Jones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Okay? mm -hmm. I'm not new 
to this thing that everybody's freaking out about now. People are freaking out, oh my God, there's racist in American politics and they're mean and horrible. So you're telling Van Jones this. I'm the person getting this telegram. Okay, look guys, the match that was struck to burn down America was struck off my forehead. Right. Okay? They, I was right. the first domino to fall. I mean, me and Acorn went down in a heap. And then they got worse from there and bigger from there and took over the Congress and elected Donald Trump. I'm, nobody needs to, let, to tell me about this. But I had to, long before others, l- make a decision about who I was going to be in the face of that. When I put all my stuff in that cardboard box and walked out of the White House and had to turn in that badge I was telling you about, I had to make a choice. Was I going to be bitter or better? And, that, and, and everybody else was still on the Obama high and this type of stuff, and we're passing health care and everything's great. I wasn't. I was alone on a couch. I was in you know, therapy. I was clinically depressed. Okay? So it's so weird to me to have people go, these people are racist and mean. Oh, you think they are? <laughs> Jeez, man. I already paid my tax. Yeah, look, hey, listen, you know, you know, that, you know, eight years ago, I was a number, and listen, and for two years after I left the White House, let's not forget, I was mentioned and referred to on Fox News on a weekly basis mm-hmm. as the number one voodoo doll for them to poke pins in, because at that time Obama was still too popular for them to go after him directly. Mm-hmm. So they had to go after me and Bill Ayers and Reverend Wright and Acorn and Van Jones, all this sort of stuff. And so I'm just, I think I'm just maybe a few steps ahead in the process. I'm not going to let them turn me into something I'm not. Mm. I'm not going to do it. I am not a hateful person. I am not going to be tricked into hating, you know, white people, rich or poor, who have been, you know, suckered into whatever bigotry they're holding on to for their security blanket. That's not the best of who they are. That's who they're showing up as right now. And I'm going to fight you. But I'm not going to become them. And having made that decision, it was a hard comeback. It had been very easy for me to have put out a book called White Lash. You know, fuck Donald Trump. It had been a bestseller today. It would have had no words in it. Just the cover <laughs> by itself. I would have made millions. Nobody's even opened the book. I love this book. There's literally blank pages. I read it cover to exactly, cover. I read, uh-huh. Exactly, yeah. Like, I, that would have been the easiest thing for me to do. I put out a book that was, you know, not that book. It was trying to figure out, you know, a way through this thing where you're tough on your opponents, where, where they're wrong. You're also willing to be reflective on us where we could do better. And you're trying to figure out, even if nobody changes their position, what could, could, what could you get done for the country anyway? And I had to do that. Yeah. Because had I not, I would have been a bitter, angry person. I'd have been bitter with the, with, with, with the whole country. I didn't want to become that. And I just invite other people who, frankly, have had less of a rough time it, – I don't mean to go on, but let me just say one more thing about this to show you how seriously I take this. I never talk about this. Nobody ever asked me about this. When I left the White House, the people who paid for the smear campaign saying I was a 9-11 truther and a, you know, a racist and a communist and all that sort of stuff. You know, certainly, I've been a Marxist when I was in my 20s, proud of it. But all the other stuff is totally nuts. Um, but the people who paid for that smear campaign, Coke Industries, Gave money to something called Americans for Prosperity, AFP, who then took, the, took their nonsense to Fox, and that became the whole deal. 
Who do I work with on a regular basis right now to close prisons? Coke Industries. Because even though I fight them on their environmental, you know, destroy the earth policies, and I fight them on their anti-democratic $1, one vote policies, they're libertarian. So they actually agree with me on criminal justice. They actually think we got too many laws, the government's got too much power, locking up too many people. So I work with Coke Industries and Mark Holden on a regular basis to close prisons, even though I fight them on everything else. You know why? Because I've never gone into a prison and met somebody who said, Van, please get me out of prison, but don't work with, don't work with any Republicans. Right? right? Please, right. whatever you do. Right. Like the most important thing is for you to maintain your liberal purity and talk about how much you hate Republicans. Please, for God's sake, don't work with them to get me out of here. I've never met anybody with a real problem who thought these kinds of, of food fights among elites were as important as we do. And so, you know, listen, I'm willing to have people sort of, you know, Van's a little bit of a false equivalent, Tom, who doesn't really understand racism. I'll put up with that from liberals and progressives because I, I think at the end of the day, the pathway forward where we actually get a chance to not only win elections but also govern, got to win the election and then govern, looks and sounds a lot more like how I'm sounding than some of the reactions we're having right now to Trump. I want to go a little bit deeper into what you started to talk about there in 2009, leave the White House, turn in that beloved badge. You're depressed. Mm -hmm. You're doing therapy. You're doing lots of things to try to pick yourself back up. So just personally, how did you pick yourself back up from that low and get back to being your best self. It was not easy, and it took years. Um, I mean, that was a scalding, I mean, just a devastating, emotionally devastating thing because, again, I'm the good kid, you know, the kind of nerdy, you know, do-gooder kid, um, and I I felt like I had kind of, um, I felt like an Easter egg that was painted on the outside, but was hollow on the inside. And so when that chest came, I just was smushed. There was nothing inside of myself that had the resilience. I had my resume. I had my good grades. I had my good intentions. I had my awards and honors. But once you pierce that, when you see people get torn apart on national media, and we all sit back and laugh, I never laugh. I've been that person. And here's what it feels like. It feels like somebody has taken your face and torn it off and stapled some ugly face on it, some other face that's only this one mistake you made or this one thing you said or this one you know, downfall. And until that happens, you're mostly known by your peers. Even at you know, MSNBC, CNN, you know, the people, you know, they, they know you. They've seen you in a certain context. They've seen your good days and your bad days. When you become the center, as I was, of a global international news story where you're the you're the 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 terrible bad higher embarrassment to the administration suddenly the number of people who know you goes up by multiple zeros but they only know you in a bad way and you're looking at yourself on tv saying i would fire that guy i i mean what kind of a horrible person is but it's you so your whole identity and everything that you are has been stripped away and replaced with a cartoon that you didn't draw, and you have to live with that. And it doesn't change the next day, or the next day, or the next day. It doesn't change for a long time. When you go through something like that, just to get out of bed is very hard. Just to try and stand up in front of a crowd 
and give a speech, which I used to do all the time and now do all the time, it takes days of kind of just getting yourself ready to be able just to do that and try to keep up a good outer appearance. To come back from the kind of ass kicking that I took, for most people it's just like a one bad day in the press. Oh yeah, like now it's like, oh fuck Jared Kushner, like, he'll just be gone one, day, one bad day in the press. When, when, you're, when, when, when the camera doesn't move off you to the next story and it's just your life <laughs> and you have to come back from that, it's very, very hard. And so I think I do, again, it comes, so when I'm sitting there and I'm listening to a, to a, a Jeffrey Lord or somebody else, I've had to make my peace with the fact that we live in a country that has people like that in it. And I had a revelation in my own mind. I thought about, I thought about the Obamas. And I thought about how, as badly as I was treated, um, they were treated very badly as well. And there was a time, I mean, especially when they first got there, you couldn't go on the, the page, like the Washington Post online without seeing in the comment section, inward, 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 inward about them. But what I noticed about the Obamas is that they fought for a health care bill. And that health care bill was designed, had the Republican governors let it happen, was designed to get doctors to babies in red states where their parents were calling them nigger every day. And I thought about that. I'm like, hold on a second. Here the Obamas getting called N-words and apes and monkeys and Michelle called everything in the world. But they got up every day and they really did try to help everybody regardless because for them it was more important. I said, how can I be an Obama ex-staffer, 2008 hope and changer, and come back out and basically let their opponents win, let the style of their opponents win, let the nastiness of their opponents win, and let their dignity and their grace and their nobility actually lose. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm a part of something. I'm a part of something. And I'm going to continue to fight for it. And I'm, listen, Donald Trump can run the White House. He's not going to run my house. He's not going to run my show. I'm going to be who I was as best I can. And I think that over time, you know, once we get back a little bit of power, we get some of these governorships, we get the House back, hopefully the Senate or whatever, over time, we'll come back to ourselves. And that grace and that dignity and, and, that, and that way of being, I think, will become more popular. Right now, it's not. But I, I'm not going to let it go. So it was the grace and dignity of the Obamas as people that helped you as a sort of North Star it's a, it's, out of your depression? It's a reference point. Mandela is a reference point. You know, Mandela was and Mandela was no Dr. King. Mandela led Mkanto with his way, the armed wing. I mean, yeah. so let's not make Mandela some Gandhi figure. I mean, Mandela was in prison because he was leading an army. Yeah. Um, but when he when he came out, he kept his army. <laughs> he, he refused to disband Mkanto with his way. Um, but he said, "Listen, we're all going to be here. We're all going to be here. We're not going to drive the white man into the sea, and that, we're all going to be here." So we need as much power as we can possibly get. We're going to try to get every vote that we can. We're going to form the, you know, we're, we're not screwing around here. This is a real contest for power. But I'm going to conduct myself in a way that, whether they believe it or not, the people who support me know when we govern, we're going to govern for everybody. And that's what's missing in both parties. This is not a false equivalence. It's 90% them and 10% us. But we're guilty of it too. We don't conduct ourselves as, as if we want to govern for everybody. Is it that, that, that coal miner with black lung disease who spent 30 years in a mine trying to keep the lights turned on for Americans, who voted for Trump and doesn't like black people and scared of Muslims, counts too. 
that I want that person, yes, without changing their vote or changing their mind, to have a dignified and decent life. And I'll fight alongside them or even against them to get them that. That's who we are. That's what makes us the left, the progressives, not just a bunch of interest group complainers, but people who deserve to govern a country. And so, you know, that's, for me, the dignity of the Obamas, the grace of a Mandela, the incredible spiritual achievements of, of a Dr. King and Ella Jo Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. That's our tradition. And I'm just not going to let Trump take it away from me. So uh, deepening on this question in this moment, because it seems at several moments in your life you have stepped back and you've said, I don't like the way things are going. I need to make a change. And that's really hard. Mm -hmm. And then you went out and did it. How do you change your life? Not easily or well and not in a linear way. You know, it's a it's a it's a wavery line with lots of backsliding and you know, it's not it's not an easy thing to do. Uh but I think yeah, honestly becoming a dad was a was a big deal. Listen, I'm a spiritual person. I meditate, I pray. I've gone to you know, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, Landmark Forum, uh, Hoffman Institute. I mean, there's no self-help, self-improvement thing I haven't at least tried. I've never tried drugs or alcohol, but um, but you know, there's nothing like that I haven't at least tried because, um, you know, at the end of the day, I you learn very quickly, quickly as a grassroots organizer the limit of your campaign and the limit of your ability to do good is never your opponent. It's always you. It's your ego, it's your attitude, it's your procrastination, it's your lack of self-organization, it's your lack of skill, it's your lack of contacts. You're always the, the, the limiting factor on what people can accomplish. And so you have to work on yourself. There's a guy named uh, Robert Gass who has a, a program that a bunch of progressives have, have gone through um, that you know, really helps you hold that mirror up. So listen, I'm tougher on myself than I am on progressives. I'm tougher on progressives than I am on conservatives um, because at the end of the day, I want our conservative sisters and brothers to be in opposition. I want us to be in government. I want them in opposition, but not oblivion. Mm. I, don't, I don't want them, I don't, I don't have this fantasy that if they would all just be like us or leave the, the country, America would be so much better. We actually, at the end of the day, need each other. Now, I want to govern. I don't want them to govern. I want us to govern. But we need that back and forth, those checks and those balances, those, those, those you know, I wish they were, they were more principled and more consistent. Yeah, they're not, uh, they're not functioning as a consistent party now. And yeah. They haven't been for a while. And even, you know, like our friend Essie Cup would say, in some ways the party has left her, you know, and it's to the right of her. And, uh, you know, yeah. Abby Huntsman says the same thing. A lot of Republicans are saying the same thing. Look, their party sucks and our party sucks. Like, I don't, I mean, I mean, seriously. Like, <laughs> but they suck in different ways. Yeah, but that's fine. But I, I just think that we, I think that, I think we hold onto that teddy bear too too hard. Yes, they suck in a way that's really sucky and we suck in a way that's less sucky. Okay, but I wouldn't accept that for my kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Well, when you put it like that, it sounds yeah. really bad. Yeah. So, What's your superpower? I think I, I think I have probably way too much empathy. You know, I, I, I understand. Last time I went to jail, 
I wasn't marching with Black Lives Matter in Oakland. I went to jail marching with coal miners who were getting their health care and pensions stolen by coal companies. And um, and I stood stood by them, and we fought, and we actually got and the only health care victory last year that you know was meaningful was when we got twenty thousand coal miners their health care benefits back. You know, Van Jones working with the coal miners unions and a bunch of Republicans. My staff was so concerned about how that would quote unquote look that the Dream Corps never sent out a press release announcing the victory because they thought that the left would come down on me so hard for helping Trump voters. And I said to myself, <laughs> I would rather, we're supposed to, this, this is who we are now as liberals. Somebody voted for Trump, therefore they should die of black lung disease. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make sense. Right. And, but that, but trying to protect me, my beautiful colleagues at the Dream Corps, never announced this huge victory that we got for those coal miners. Um, my, what's my superpower? I love myself enough that I know how to protect myself emotionally and otherwise when I deal with people who I don't agree with. That's the first. You got to love yourself first. Otherwise, you, you could be abused. You don't want to be somebody who loves other people and hates yourself. You want to be an abusive situation. I love myself enough that I can protect myself. But I, I, I love other people and I understand other people enough that when I'm in the neighborhood and there's some kid, some black kid, who's cussing out everybody, who's being terrible. I see more than just that. I see more than just that. Now, I got to deal with the fact this kid's being terrible, but I see more than just that. Or when I'm in Appalachia and I'm dealing with some, you know, NRA Trump person who is, you know, probably a bigot, I got to deal with that. But I see more than that. I also see somebody who's worked hard their whole life and they don't know why they didn't wind up where they wanted to be. I also see somebody who's got skills that I don't have, who's done things for their community that matter. And I think it gives me the ability to, 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 to show at least a level of respect, even in disagreement, that I think can be useful. Mm. Um, what is your most instructive failure? I have so many. Um, no, I'm That's serious. True. I mean, I mean, I've tried so many things that just didn't work out. I mean, is there a failure? The failure I'm driving toward is the one that you learned the most from and you grew the most from. Look, I think uh, the whole process of of shooting from a well-known local guy in Oakland. I mean, everybody in the Bay Area who's political knew who I was, you know, 10 years ago. But Oakland's like 300,000 people in a country 300 million. Um, suddenly, you know, this little program we're doing to get kids trained to put up solar panels becomes a hot thing. Boom, I'm on Stephen Colbert, and I've got a bestseller, and I'm going to the White House. And that whole quick elevation, I mean, from grassroots to the White House in like nine months, and then six months later, out. That incredible rise and then really big crash, recovering from that and trying to learn from that is is the source of who I am now. I mean, I left the country. You know, Prince told me, look, just get out of the country. I left the country. I got to Jerusalem, landed Tel Aviv, got in a car, went to the old city, walked through the gates of the old city in Jerusalem. This is like two weeks after I left the White House, maybe a month. And a guy walks up to me and goes, you're Van Jones. And I look around in the old city of Jerusalem, there are satellite dishes all over. I'm a global news story. That's 
that process was so mind-blowing um, that, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody because it was incredibly painful, but it does, I mean, once you come back from that, um, y- you know, you're just, you're just able, you're capable. It's like, listen, if right now Jeff called me and said, look, man, the show is stupid and we don't want you anymore and get the hell out of here, um, I would turn in my card. I would feel very, very badly, but I would also know how to get myself back to some useful place in America. And so I don't walk in fear of, hey, what if this ends tomorrow? Well, it will. Some tomorrow it will end. Um, you know, what about your ratings? What about this? What about that? What if you never get another, another big, big booking? You know, what if you run out of all these things that people worry about? I've already come to peace. This is a very tough world, There's a lot of mean people. You can only uh, do your best and try to help somebody. And at the end of the day, even the Obamas weren't able to do what, I mean, the Obamas are the best we're ever going to see. And they weren't able to get the country where they wanted it. So as a pundit, there's only so much you can do. When you were going through <clears throat> that, that, that dark night of the soul in 2009 and 2010, did Barack or Michelle call you or reach out to you? No, and it's, it's, it wouldn't have been appropriate. It's very hard for people to understand that building. Uh, an hour in that building is like a day. Uh, a day in that building is like a week. A week is a lifetime. The, the level of stress and pressure is unbelievable. And I was, at, I, I was the lowest guy in the totem pole there. They'd be like, oh, the green job czar, whatever. Like I was just like a regular staff person with a small assignment. And I couldn't. I mean, it was overwhelming. And so, listen, when you fall on your sword, they didn't fire me. I, I quit. When you fall on your sword, you don't then jump up and go, ow, 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 and you know, give me a cookie and a Band-Aid and pat me on the head. You, know, you do that because you want them to be, to be able to move forward, and you want them to be able to move forward in a clean way. Um, and so, no, but at the same time, does it hurt you know, to kind of watch the, the parade go on without you? Man, I mean, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Last thing, because we do a lot about Prince on this show. Yeah. And you had a, a deep and meaningful personal relationship. Um, so just interpersonally, what was he like? He was the worst best friend you could ever have. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible. What does that mean? He's a terrible. Um, when good things happen to you, he never called. He never said shit. And you're like, look, I know he knows. Like, I've, this thing happened, that thing happened. You know, I got written up here. I got a profile there. He's on the internet all the time. I know he knows. <laughs> Motherfucker never calls. Something bad happens. He's right there. Right there. And that's why I say he's the worst best friend. Like, as long as things are going well for you, he's just monitoring from afar. Doesn't, doesn't care. I got it when I when, when the crossfire when I got crossfire no comment when they canceled this show I need you to come to Paisley. So that's the kind of guy that he was. He he he. When Oprah when 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 Own was kind of on looked like it was going to be on wobbly legs. He said, "Look, we're not going to let her fail. If they keep trying to push her down." I'm going to get every black celebrity I can to just boycott all the other stations for two months and only do interviews with her until she's all right. 
not because he wants you know an investment or a piece of the stock or this or that I wants a credit. She's got to win. She's got to win. And that you know with, with Jay, you know Jay Z offered him a big piece of title when he first started that streaming service. You know he could, Madonna, a bunch of people he went to. Prince refused to take the money. I mean, refused to take the to, to be a part of it on a financial level. All of us were going nuts. Like, what are you doing? This is crazy. He's like, no, 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 I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. Then, when it looked like Title was having problems, he said, "I want to take all my stuff off of every other service and put it on Title. He can't lose." And so I finally asked him. I said, "Look, dude, now you're trying to help this, month, but when you could make some money." He said, no, I always wanted to be able to own my own content and my own distribution. This is the first black artist that's able to do that. I don't want his money. I want him to win. Okay? He was so free, <laughs> so beyond. Prince look at you like a, a, a sober person looking at a drunk person half the time. You know what I mean? He just like, are y'all still really on this little petty stuff? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it was a lot of that. And so I wouldn't have made it without him. Um, I wouldn't have made it. You know, sometimes you just need somebody to, to care about you when you're down, when the world's walking away from you, when nobody cares, when you're finished, when you're a joke, when you're a punchline. And he was that guy. So when you walked out of the White House, mm -hmm. then then he called. Yeah. Yeah. And what did he say? He said, I need you to come to Paisley. No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what he said. Um, he said, uh, Van, you're the most controversial person in the world right now. And I said, yeah, for better or for worse. He says, I think much for the better. He said, I want you to come to Paisley. It's the first time I went to Paisley. And, um, you know, he just... He just understood. I mean, the thing about Prince that people I, that drive me crazy. So he was a musical genius. He's a musical genius. Look, a lot of people can pay, play the piano or play a lot of instruments. He had a genius for people. Mm. He had a genius for humanity that was so profound it could only be expressed musically. That's but when you you know I've got a chance to be on stage with him many times, and the thing about most concerts. You're in the audience. All you see is the back of people's heads, their cell phones, and the artist. I got a chance to be on stage. Like he, he would put us, you know, he put a couch on stage. You know, people—they're so mesmerized by him. They look, they look at the stage. He'd have a couch on stage with his friends. So he put a couch on stage. We'd be on stage with Prince. And um, so I got a chance to see the world the way he saw it, looking at the faces of people, not the back of their head. Every color, every gender, the every age. The, the, the punk people, the old 80s crew, the young kids, the black kids, the hip-hop kids, all humanity. And he hit one chord, and they were right here. So he knew that most of this stuff was not this divisive. He's like, people are right here. Love black people, too. It was unashamed. Like, black people, black culture, proud of that, but offered it up in a way that united the whole world. People listen to his albums at Republican weddings and Democratic weddings. One red, one blue, he was purple. So that whole process of being kind of robbed into his Batman, you know what I mean? Like he would send me out on these missions and stuff. Look, I'm concerned about this community, that community. I go out and stuff. When you have that kind of backup, 
Because Robin ain't got no powers. Robin went around in little underwear. He ain't supposed to be even be in the you know in the DC universe. Like why he here? But when you know you got Batman behind you, it's like you can only keep me tied up in this basement for so long before the door's gonna get kicked in. And so you, know, I was it, it accelerated my healing, accelerated my ability to kind of find my way forward. And uh, you know Janelle Monae will tell you the same thing. A lot of us who were around for the so-called the last camp of Prince, um, but. Um, you know, I uh, I think about him every day, and I try to do well by him, too. Van is so inspirational. He's the sort of guy you want to listen to on TV and hang with at the bar after the TV and tell your kids, especially your little boys, that's the kind of guy you want to be like. And I love Van's comeback story. People who get knocked down 10 times and get up 11 are the toughest kind of people. They're my kind of people. Thanks, Van, for your time. Thanks to you for listening. We're giving you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. I hope this show can help you. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Stop by and say hi. And please subscribe, rate, and review and tell a friend who you think will like the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford with help from Shelby Royston and William Jolly and in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.